0: Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. (laughs) My name is Gretchen, and I'm Lee, and I'm Morgan. Hey, we've got a new—that's a new voice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have a special guest. Yeah, and we, uh, not just a special guest. We have it. We have a special room full of guests today. Ooh.
1: Yeah, yeah. We are uh, live at our second TGI Fem slash Con. Everybody, say hi. Thank you.
0: For those of you who may not be aware, this is the con where History's Gay was born. Yes, this is Yeah, we were birthed at this con. Birthed
1: from. <laughs> birthed from the party room late at night. Like, <laughs> hey, like,
0: do you want to do this thing? Like two in the morning. Two in the morning. Yeah. Like, do you like History? Do you like be gay?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'll do this thing with you. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, we do words. We're we great do words. at words. We love words. Y'all, we were in the party rooms last night. We didn't get a lot of sleep. I didn't get a lot
0: of sleep. It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. So, today's episode, we are going to be talking about queer censorship
1: and lesbian pulp fiction. Yeah. In the 50s. And we figured what, what better thing to do than to bring a conversation to all these lovely people who are here to talk about gays in media, to talk about the actual, like, history of gays in media. <laughs> wow. It only took us two years to do this. <laughs>
2: Sometimes not fun. Sometimes not
1: fun. Sometimes fun covers, though.
2: Yes. Good stuff. And delicious, lovely Patricia
1: Highsmith. Oh. Fun stuff. Mm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, y'all know our aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) So this is going to be a little bit of a different style of episode since we have a very abbreviated time. So we're going to be doing a little thing. We're going to have it be each one of us is going to lead like a 15-minute kind of Topic burst. We're going to start off talking about the Hayes Code, which is the set of uh, morality code, you know, guidelines. Um, that was like, Hey, y'all, this is how you can and can't do any sort of representation of queerness in media. And then we're going to talk about lesbian pulp novels and where that kind of evolved into. And then we're going to go into one specific, uh, mm-hmm. novelist that if you're a fan of Carol, you may have been familiar with. Good old Patricia the, Highsmith. The author of The Price is Salt,
0: where Carol comes from. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the original. Yeah.
2: So yeah, Morgan. Morgan, why don't you, why don't you tell us about the Hayes Code? Sure. I would love to tell you about the Hayes Code. <coughs> um, it's <laughs> great. <laughs> uh,
1: That's ironic s- laughter.
2: Yeah. So uh, pre haze Code, because film has been around for a lot longer than censorship, or well, censorship has been around longer than film, but... There wasn't always censorship in film. There wasn't always rating systems like we have now. So censorship in film didn't actually start with the Hays Code. Uh, It became popular in the early 1900s. So film starts being a marketable, sellable thing in the late 1800s and then we move into the 1900s and once it's being shown in theaters across the United States once it becomes more and more popular of course people are like all right we have to figure out what's cool and what's not cool for people to look at mm-hmm. um, yeah we we a group of five people need to decide what's appropriate for like everyone else <laughs> I'm sure they were very diverse too yeah <laughs> especially in the early 1900s yeah um, <laughs> So, and part of that was, is that films were being consumed by a growing immigrant population in the United States. And so, of course, people were like, well, we need to make sure that these people that are coming from somewhere else have a specific idea of what the United States is about. And that includes no racy stuff. (laughs) And this kind of led to a bunch of censorship groups in different cities. Each city would have its review board that would view the films before they were sent to theaters and would determine, okay, this is totally cool or absolutely not, no way. Um So criticism usually se- uh, centered on four areas. The effects on children. So the, you know, think of the children kind of thing that gets said Over and over again, literal pearl clutching at the time, yeah, because they would have been wearing them, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, So the the concern is always, you know, what's going to mess up children, which I mean is a valid concern, but (laughs) it's kind of a false wall for. You know, we don't want these things to be shown. And so we're going to kind of scapegoat children and be like, we don't want children to see this potential health problems, negative influences on morals and manners. This was when manners was like a big deal and etiquette and all of that. And then a lack of role of education and religion in film development, a lack of religion becomes significant down the line. Uh, when we talk about the Hayes Code and censorship. And this wasn't, this is kind of a bipartisan deal. Conservatives and progressives were really on the review board train, the censorship train. Um, conservatives were concerned with films being a threat to authority and social structures in the United States. And then progressives saw them as a distraction from social organizations and progression (laughs) (laughs) in the U S. So yeah, a lot of cities had review boards, even in the early 1900s and 1907, the Chicago police were able to review films and were able to give licenses to filmmakers or to theaters to show films. So even it went all the way up to government structures in different cities. So it wasn't, you know, just a handful of people watching movies and deciding. It, it was kind of a, a government deal. So by 1920, more than 90 cities had some kind of review board. And then by 1923, 22 states had review boards for films. With review boards and with censorship, and you see this kind of happen across the board through history, when we talk about censorship a lot of it has to do with social issues and what's going on in the time Mm -hmm. to determine what's going to be acceptable in media content. And in the early 1900s, I mean, (laughs) this has kind of been always, but especially in the early 1900s, a big concern was race relations in the United States. So there was a heavyweight boxer, Jack Johnson, who won the heavyweight title in, I believe, 1908? Yeah, 1908. And that was filmed because they filmed boxing matches at the time. Um, And he beat... He was a a black man and he beat a white boxer. And that was filmed and then distributed. And people were not happy about it. And by people, I mean white people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) White people were not thrilled that this guy did this and then were extra not happy that this was filmed and then distributed for other people to see. So... They stopped allowing boxing films to be transferred over state lines. You couldn't distribute a boxing film over state lines. And that was because of this one fight that happened. And we kind of think of most media as free speech, you know, First Amendment, stuff like that. Government can't stop us from, you know, creating films or whatever. But in the early days, there was actually a Supreme Court ruling that said that uh, films were not speech, but, quote, a business pure and simple, end quote. Uh, Merely a spectacle for entertainment with, quote, a special capacity for evil, end quote. (laughs) Uh, Which, basically meant that the government could do whatever they wanted and could put laws on distributing films or where they could be which is ironic
0: because now businesses are speech right yeah (laughs) Yeah. businesses are people (laughs) who can can express freedom of speech back then being a business was
2: like no, you can't say what you want yeah a lot of a lot of stuff happens in a 100 years (laughs) (laughs) things uh things change and you 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 forget that This used to be the way that things were. Yeah. Even though there were censorship boards all across the country, this didn't stop filmmakers at all. They they still made whatever they wanted, pretty much. And they did it a lot of times to see what they could get away with. So they would, you know, do whatever, have violence or sex or whatever in their films. And then they would send them to the review boards to see if they would get passed. Because if they did, then, you know, they could talk to each other and be like, okay, so we can show like a half of a boob. And they won't flag it. Tasteful side boot. Yeah. As long as the nipples are not female presenting, (laughs) we, we can have as long as they're not female presenting, the, yeah. The review just, boards of the early 1900s in film is basically like the new Tumblr rules. Right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can't, we can't see this. So that's where, that's why I keep seeing so many nipples with mustaches everywhere, right? Yeah, like in old films, like old right. black and white film, right? Yeah, right, yeah. None, none of you totally. Yeah, gotta have the male presenting. Where am nipple. I getting my movie? I don't.
2: Sh- I, the back part of the film. <laughs> yeah, I guess story, the back guess. part of the movie store. Yeah. Um. So there was a, a period of time in the early 30s right before the Hays code was put into function or into, into the the film industry where you had these films that were just very frank about what was going on in the United States because this is this is like depression era time so there was a lot of films that talked about you know how rough it was to live in a in a uh, country that was failing pretty significantly economically. There was a lot of social change happening. And so you had a lot of really good films that were just honest. But the government didn't like that. (laughs) So you move into a time period where, you know, it's the roaring 20s into the 30s. So prohibition's happening. There's a lot of change in terms of relationships, how people are viewing sex, how people are viewing casual sex. And so the government or other officials, a lot of them being religious officials, were highly concerned about what kind of moral material was being broadcast out into the country. And at this time, we start seeing Hollywood turn into kind of the star-producing machine that it's kind of now known for, which came with, of course, its own set of scandals. So, um, Mary Pickford got divorced and then quickly remarried. There was the murder of a rumored-to-be bisexual director, William Desmond Taylor um, that was never solved Uh, Comedian Fatty Arbuckle Was charged for a murder of a rising Film star at this like wild Illegal party in a hotel room In San Francisco So even the image Of Hollywood wasn't You know moral and so the government was like You all have to get it together or we're Going to do it (laughs) and the film industry Was like we don't want that (laughs) At all So In response to all this and and to keep the government from getting involved, they, a bunch of uh, directors and other people in the film industry created the MPPDA, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. They love these long acronyms. (laughs) Um, And they hired Will Hayes to head the MPPDA. He was a previous Republican National Committee chair, and he was the campaign manager for Warren G. Harding. So he was basically the PR man he was just trying to re- rehabilitate Hollywood's image, make sure that the government doesn't get involved, all of that good stuff. So, he and the board created the Hays Code in 1927. It it was not popular at first and also was <laughs> really hard to enforce. There was no way to enforce it. And so, basically the filmmakers like looked at the Hayes Code and were like, "Okay." <laughs> and then <laughs> like threw it away. So, what it was was a list of 11 don'ts and 25 be carefuls. So the don'ts were like, you absolutely cannot have these 11 things in films. And then 25 be carefuls were, you can have them, but they need to be part of the plot in some significant way that's not scandalous or shameless or whatever. And part of the don'ts included things like, you know, profanity, nudity, really sex in general. They just were not into people having sex in films. (laughs) Uh, this is the start. People like to talk about how on I Love Lucy, Lucy mm-hmm. and Ricky didn't sleep in the same bed. That's because of the Hayes Code, mm-hmm. um, which in a moment I will talk about TV a little bit. Um, the no drugs and what's important for this podcast, no depictions of sexual perversion. They meant gay, don't, no gay shit, basically <laughs> yeah. cut out the gay shit. And then be careful for crime, use of guns, stuff like that kind of branched off of these bigger things. Lustful kissing. Yes. That's my favorite. Lustful kissing. Lustful kissing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that too. When I do this lecture <laughs> with my students and I tell them that part of it's lustful kissing, they're like, what the f-? Is that? <laughs> well, like that explains why when you watch all those old timey movies and I'm like, this
0: is not a rot, they're just like smushing pieces. If, yeah, if you're like, lying back and like thinking me. of England, it's fine.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Pretty don't much. you be
0: thinking, don't if you want it, you can't
2: show you, you having any kind of desire involved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, sex for procreation was the big <sighs>
1: Yeah, everybody wants to watch that on TV. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I love that. Um, So basically, the first principle of the code is, quote, no picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Sin being the important part here. This was pretty much ignored until 1934 when the Catholic Legion of Decency threatened to boycott films. And then everybody was like, ah, we can't get rid of that sweet, sweet Catholic money. And (laughs) because it was a big enough group of people that they were like, ah, can't do it. So they threatened to boycott the films, and the code was put into mass use at that point. Hayes and the MPPDA created the PCA, the Production Code Administration, which was headed by a Catholic layman, Joseph Breen. So the Breen era of the code is talked about a lot when you reference the Hayes Code, because he actually got it enforced. Mm. He was the one that actually got the job done in terms of the Hayes Code. And each film had to have a stamp of approval. Like there was a, a shot, you know, how you see like the, the MGM lion at the beginning of a ton of films, similar to that. You would see a stamp of approval by this office and they had like carte blanche to do whatever they wanted. And they would look at scripts and they would also look at the films and they were able to just remove anything that, that they saw that they could argue fit under this kind of parameter of no no fun stuff, really. No fun shit. Um, so what does this mean for queer folks? Uh, bad. It's bad to be, to be kind of like light on on it. Um, so sex perversion, basically code for homosexuality. And if you're trying to create a code where you want to scrub out the things that you don't want to see in your society, if you're a homophobic society, you're probably going to try and scrub out homosexuality in films or queerness. You couldn't show anything. Not a, not, or, or it had to be so subtextual and hidden that like the straights wouldn't see it. But this also kind of worked in a negative way and that a lot of villains were queer coded at this point. So if you've ever seen like the Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. the villain in the Maltese Falcon is heavily queer coded. And there are gay characters in the Maltese Falcon, but they aren't vilified as much as the as the film. So also never being able to have like a happy ending. Yeah. Right.
1: Like if you were going to show characters that were queer and not villains, it had like there needed to be a return to home return to heterosexuality mm-hmm. or some sort of punishment. There you could show it. You could show queerness, but you couldn't encourage it or validate it. Right.
2: Yeah. So they yeah, they either had to die or they were the villain. The code did eventually fail for a couple of reasons. The first being that films ended up being covered under the First Amendment. There's a different Supreme Court case, and so that changed. So the film industry wasn't worried about the government doing anything anymore because they didn't really have any power to, because the government told the government <laughs> that it couldn't <laughs> that it couldn't do anything. There were some films that the directors were like, fuck you guys, and just made the film anyway and released it um, without the seal, without the approval of the committee. And they were wildly popular. Gee, I wonder why. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So You want the good stuff? Stamp. Yeah. So the office was seeing that, you know, this is not sustainable anymore. People are gonna go see these films. And and theaters kind of had the ability to show kind of whatever they wanted. But, you know, for credibility reasons, they tended to show films that had the stamp, but some of them didn't. And those films were really, really popular. One of the biggest things, and I say this like over and over again to my students, is that television changed the game for media so hard and nothing really had that kind of impact until the internet again. But television was so popular in the United States when it became feasible for a larger audience to purchase that films had to do something to get people to come back to the theater because you could just sit in your home with your TV dinner and with your family and not have to go anywhere and watch like howdy doody or something instead of going to the movies. So they decided to scrap the code, but then television had codes. So by the 1960s, the TV code um, became a thing. And it's almost exactly the same as the Hayes code, so I'm not going to like <laughs> repeat that that whole thing. But there was a lot of concern about, of course, the children. Because you know, if you could plop your kid down in front of a TV and have them watch, you know, whatever, you're going to probably be concerned maybe with what that kids watching. I don't know. I was left unsupervised to watch a lot of television, so <laughs> uh, and I turned out reasonably okay. So <laughs> I mean, you're here. <laughs> so. Right, I'm here. So, yeah, so everything worked out just the way it was supposed to. So yeah, it was not great for queer folks in terms of television either. A lot of it was, you couldn't show it. Um, it was worded differently in the television codes than in the Hayes code. Basically, it was no illicit sex, but the, the meaning was kind of the same. So a lot of the first queer characters that are explicit, like, it says in the narrative on the episode that they're, they're gay. They usually die or they're the villain. Otto Straddle has a really good article about the first couple queer female characters on television. We'll
0: put that in our show
2: notes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And all of them either die or they're the villain or something else ludicrous, but they never are happy and they never being gay is clearly shown as not a good thing. So the television code ended in the 80s, the early 80s. It didn't last super long, but it still had a lasting impact just like the Hayes code did. I mean, I think, you know, the kind of core... When we talk about the Hayes Code and the television codes is that it heavily, heavily impacted how queer people are shown in media, mm-hmm. um, how they're shown in films, how they're shown on television. I mean, not to like raise a ghost, but Lexa, what happened to Lexa <laughs> is mm-hmm. you can trace that back to good old Will Hayes and probably in even farther, which which Lee will talk about so you yeah. could probably could go back even farther with that. Yeah. So I try, when I talk about reputation, re, uh, representation in class, I try and end on like a high note. Because <laughs> it can be really like a downer. And the thing is, is that we have a lot of good stuff now. Things are getting better. We're getting more queer folks into television and into the film industry. And, you know, we're seeing things like One Day at a Time and Pose and all of these really good shows that portray queerness in a positive way. Um, so it's not all sad, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, for better, or for worse, we're getting an L word reboot. Like, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's getting better, but yeah, there we go. So that's my little. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, much for joining t- us,
1: Morgan. Yeah. Thank you. Teaching what? us all about the yeah. code. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Part of the reasoning why like cons like this exist is, Having those kind of discussions about these sort of things like the morality codes. And it's Mm -hmm. so funny, like, talking about this, you also think about... So the Hayes Code and the the television codes were not the only things in effect. They did not only bring these restrictions to visual medium. You also saw it in the written medium. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's, like, the Comics Code Authority, if any of y'all are Mm -hmm. comics fans. And this also extended out into the publishing world, which I'm going to talk about. A little bit. Uh, So the influence of the Hayes Code and other morality codes meant that we not only saw these rules in, you know, the film and television, but the publishing world really was um, beholden to them as well. Because if you represented these sort of things that were illicit, it could greatly diminish your ability to distribute the books. So a lot of authors were actually forced into Doing the same kind of things, mm-hmm. so I want to talk about in the 1950s and 1960s, like even before really we had, you know, like film and television really, really becoming the zeitgeist. Is a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community found any sort of representation they could get them their hands on was in the form of lesbian pulp paperback novels. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these quote unquote pulp. Novels were original paperback novels, so they were never, you know, published with, like, a cloth cover first. They were published originally in paperback, um, and they usually, you know, were having, like, scandalous, sexualized, melodramatic covers, and they were, you know, part of a larger genre, but the lesbian romance subsection was one of the highest-selling parts of the market. You've probably seen some of these before. They, you know, have, like, scantily clad women in negligees on the covers, and they have wild taglines, like this is Sheldon Lord's The Third Way, Kate Belosa and Liz Bellows had designs on their employer and also on each other. (laughs) For they were more than ambitious. They were driven by twisted desires. Or Is is this fanfic?
0: Is this like... Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's
1: literally... (laughs) Let me tell you. Uh, Anne Bannon's Odd Girl Out, a confession of a shocking and forbidden love. Mm -hmm. Or uh, my my favorite... uh, From Twilight Girl Lorraine was different But was she bad? The savage story Of a pretty teenager Enticed into forbidden practices By older girls (laughs) I say directly After people got out Of a Dark Waters panel Um, So yeah So originally These books were kind of Created out of like Voyeuristic intent They were Meant to appeal To unsurprisingly Heterosexual Male audiences And so It has You know Ties to Some of pornographic history But what's really, really interesting about this is that what came out of it was an entire generation of women who came to their lesbian or bisexual identity by way of these novels. This was a way that they could walk into a drugstore, walk up to a newsstand, and find something that reflected something of themselves and their experiences, no matter the homophobic context around it. And that's a conversation that I really want to get into is, mm-hmm. it raises the question, is any representation, is this representation that we were seeing from the Hayes Code and from these other morality codes, this question of like, well, they have to die at the end or they have to do X, Y, and Z, is that better than nothing at all? Does it at least give a reprieve? And a lot of what I found in my research is that this was profoundly important to creating the very sense of, like, a lesbian print culture and a lesbian identity in the 1950s and 1960s. So some scholars on on lesbian pulp novels had some really, really wonderful quotes that I, I wanted to read out. So Lee Lynch, who wrote a book called Cruising the Libraries, said, At last, lesbians! I read every one of these mass market paperbacks I could get my hands on. I was driven, searching for my nourishment like a starveling, grabbing at every crumb that looked, tasted, or smelled digestible. I think we can all relate to that, right? Like, we try to find anything we can. Or Donna Allegra from Between the Sheets. No matter how embarrassed and ashamed I felt when I went to the cash register to buy these books, it was absolutely necessary for me to have them. I needed them the way I needed food and shelter for survival. Mm -hmm. So just, like, take that in. We, We all know what it feels like to see ourselves represented and feel like you've gotten something that you've needed for so long.
0: Right. And just like a tiny little note, I think as we talk about language here, I just want to say like for all of our listeners, like when we say lesbian, like this is labeled lesbian. But in this context, we're using it inclusively for all queer female experience. Mm -hmm. So this would include um, bisexual women or pansexual women or other multigender attracted women. This is, you know, so just just the language at the time. This was the language at the time using to describe it was lesbian. So just wanted to be clear for our listeners that like we're not using lesbian in an exclusive context here. Right.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting about these books is that because they were not, like, in the kind of high art kind of area, that they were kind of lowbrow, a lot of scholars tend to ignore these, and also because of their, you know, homophobic characteristics. But as, like, the quotes that we just mentioned attest, these... Non-literary, often homophobic books mattered intensely to some women. So a lot of scholars will call these, you know, like just survival literature. So I'm going to go a little bit into the history of them. So the golden age of what we call, you know, the lesbian pulps is generally considered to be 1950 to 1965, You had kind of a period between 1928, which is when the publication of The Well of Loneliness happened by Radcliffe Hall in the 1920s, 1930s. And then the 70s, where you had this wave of lesbian, bisexual, feminist publishing. There was, you know, there was a period of time where there wasn't a huge amount until 1950, where we had these mass market paperbacks with explicitly lesbian themes and sensationalized covers that had millions in sales. These things were everywhere. And in the 1950s, it was a time when, you know, most women-loving women, men-loving men, couldn't access any stories about themselves, much less positive ones. And yet, though many pulps were survival literature and forced into the depressing endings and restrictions by these publishers, they were also able to connect people with stories that were reflective. And also because these were, like, kind of lowbrow pulp paperbacks, they weren't as closely scrutinized as television Mm -hmm. as high literature so authors could often get away with things that normally wouldn't get past the censors so much like morgan was talking about with you know like well the code's there but i'm gonna do whatever i want anyway so it kind of like opened the door to unregulated consumption of literary materials people would be getting these in the mail as well so the first kind of like lesbian pulp novel novel uh, that started the genre is generally considered to begin with Teresa Torres's novel *Women in Barracks* in 1950 which is a semi-autobiographical account of when she joined the Free French Army in 1939, and she was, like, in the resistance movement and the f- cover has, like, a bunch of straight... Uh, uh, she's a like, straight French woman and watching a bunch of these, like, lesbians in the Free French Army. Um, uh, and it, like, it actually it like has, like, one fully-dressed woman on the cover and then, like, a couple of women in negligees looking away at each other and towards each other. <laughs> um, and it was huge. It's it so Like over 2.5 million copies, and it started this huge boom of publishing. And suddenly, Fawcett Publishing, who was the group that was doing it, wanted more. So they got a woman uh, who was writing under the pseudonym Vin Packer to write Spring Fire, which was also extremely successful. This was in 1952, and that caused multiple other publishers to begin publishing in the genre. What's really interesting about this is that Triscutoris started it, but then you had a whole bunch of other women writers coming in who were actually lesbians writing in this genre and trying to take it like in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vin Packer is the pseudonym of Mary Jane Meeker, who's now a children's book author, and her Wikipedia <laughs> article is really great. It's got a picture of her with a cat. Um I love it. But so a lot of these books, one of the scholars actually divides the lesbian pulp genre into subsets. The two largest being, like, pro-lesbian and virile adventures. Later on in the time that lesbian pulp novels were being published, it was dominated by men. It was dominated by men writing about women, and it was very, very, like, titillating and borderline pornographic. But then you had this group of women that were sort of a, quote, industry within an industry. Lesbian pulps being written by women trying to flip the script. So uh, so between 1952 and 1957, publishers were mostly interested in those like, virile adventures that were focusing on the bottom line. And it was like, oh, hey, lesbianism sells. Let's just put as much illicitness in there as we can, um, which actually allowed another wave of pro-lesbian books to emerge with authors like Anne Bannon and Valerie Taylor. These were women who had seen how, you know, homophobic the genre had expanded to and wanted to Fight back from within So A lot of these women Ended up saying That they began to write Against the genre's norms I really loved Valerie Taylor's quote Which was I began writing Gay novels around 1957 There was suddenly A plethora of them On sale in drugstores And bookstores Many written by men Who had never Knowingly spoken To a lesbian Mm -hmm. With fulfillment stuff Pure erotic daydreaming I wanted to make Some money of course But I also thought That we should have Some stories About real people Mm. So a lot of the books feature lesbian or bisexual women trying to tell stories. And even though they were melodramatic, even though they ended in these, like, terrible endings, they were trying to tell some sort of truth. And a lot of times what was on the covers and these sensationalist things didn't actually end up matching up with what was actually in the books. There were actually a couple of books that you did actually get a couple of happy endings.
2: Yeah. One
1: of which we'll talk about in yes, just a, just a Exactly. Seconds. So, you know we don't have a huge amount of time to go as much as we wanted to into here. But what I wanted to kind of end on here is why did people, why were these books with homophobic negative energy so beloved by women? Mm. You know, why did so many bisexual and lesbian women flock to books like Spring Fire and write fan mail to Packer thanking her for representation and go on to prop up an entire sub-genre? It was the only one of the only things you had. And a lot of the times, right, like we see now representation that has, you know, if we see the barrier gaze trope now, it's very, very different than if you were to see it in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. It's what you could get. And so I really liked this quote that says, in the context of the mid 20th century, when homosexuality was still classified as a mental illness and seen as social aberration, seemingly negative lesbian representation Being written by a lesbian became a cultural refuge for lesbians living in a time when they were surrounded by the idea that their very existence was wrong. And it did that for several reasons, the chief of which being that lesbian readers understood what pulp was and what the cultural climate was. They knew the marketing was a product of the times and that the ending was nonsense. Mm. As Packer said, lesbian readers were able to look past the cover to find themselves between the pages. We always found ourselves. Mm -hmm. So... You don't tend to see a lot after 1965, mostly because porn. <laughs> 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 like, for serious, like, the rise in explicit pornography grew, and so, uh, a lot of the mainstream publishing houses were straying away from these kind of things, because smaller presses were popping up with just, just straight up, like, labeled for men, adults' books. And yeah. So. I just wanted to end on one little thing, and then we'll we'll pop into Patricia Highsmith. There's a quote from Catherine Forrest, who was one of our sources. It says, The importance of all of our Pulp Fiction novels cannot possibly be overstated. Whatever their negative images or messages, they told us we were not alone, because they told us about each other. They led us to look for and find each other. They led us to the end of the isolation that had divided and conquered us. And once we began to question the judgments made of us, our civil rights movement was born. The courage of these authors also cannot be overstated. Pseudonyms be damned. The writers of these books laid bare an intimate, hidden part of themselves, and they did it under siege, in the dark depths of a more than metaphorical wartime, because there was desperate urgency inside themselves to reach out, to put words on the page for women like themselves to read. There you go. So, speaking of women doing just that...
0: Um, we're going to zoom through Patricia Highsmith. I'm going to like basically cut most of her biography and just talk about that good gay shit because that's what we're here for, the good gay shit. So Patricia Highsmith, she is a writer known for her psychological thrillers. Um, if you know of Strangers on a Train, if you know of uh, John Ripley, like any of those, she wrote them. Um, but she wrote one very queer, very gay <laughs> book called The Price of Salt, which many of you may know by the film adaptation starring Kate Blanchett called Carol. So it was written in 1952. And all right, I'm going to zoom ahead. Well, before I actually, before I get into that, we will just say Patricia Highsmith was never, she was a fairly private person about her own life, but she was still fairly open about being a lesbian. She never hid the fact that she was a lesbian. She had relationships with lots of women. She was the kind of person who, um, She did not have very long relationships with women – she actually didn't really like women a whole lot, but she liked <laughs> having sex with women. Like, she, one of the funny tiny tidbits about her life is she'll talk, she talked about how she really tried really hard to like men because she preferred their company, but just like could never be attracted to a man. So she had these series of like really intense relationships that would last like one or two years and then she'd be like, I can't do this anymore. Um, this is a lot of commitment and I can't do it. And then so, but she was, very much a lesbian and very open about it. So even as she was writing these kind of more mainstream thrillers that didn't feature queer characters, that was her story. A lot of her male characters are actually just versions of herself. So even if you read her characters and there's this heterosexual relationship, chances are that there's actually a queer layer underneath it because she's like writing herself as a man in these relationships with women. But the one explicit one that she wrote was The Price of Salt. It was written under the pseudonym Claire Morgan.
2: Hey! <laughs> hey Morgan. Hey.
0: Morgan! Um, so, the event that inspired the book ran thus. One day, a woman in a mink coat drifted by the toy department. So Highsmith had found a job working at a toy department during the Christmas season um, just to have some more money. Highsmith later recalled, Perhaps I noticed her because she was alone or because a mink coat was a rarity and because she was blondish and seemed to give off light. Like Alfred Hitchcock, Highsmith was captivated by frosty blondes, all the more so if they were married and rich. (laughs) The shopper who slapped her gloves into one hand as she scanned the merchandise made Highsmith feel, quote, odd and swimmy in the head, near to fainting, yet at the same time uplifted, unquote. With an abstracted air, the woman, Mrs. E.R. Sen, bought a doll from Highsmith. So that is, Price of Salt is semi-autobiographical. So if you have seen Carol, you know what this is about. Um, <laughs> Cate Blanchett like is embodying this real person that interacted with Highsmith. Um, so that very night, Highsmith sat down and wrote an eight-page outline for the novel, which was the story of a 19-year-old Therese who falls in love with a wealthy suburban wife and mother in her 30s. Um, Highsmith did have a type, and her type was like a wealthy, upper-class, kind of socialite cool blonde that that was her thing relatable yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: same it's like it's like most people at this con yeah.
0: <laughs> right so like when you read teresa's first sight of carol in the novel you can't help but think of patricia catching sight of mrs e r sen that day i see her the same instant she sees me and instantly i love her instantly i am terrified because i know she knows how terrified i am and that i love her Though there are seven girls between us, I know, she knows, she will come to me and have me wait on her. Seven girls between us, huh? I mean, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Polyamory for everyone. Uh, so there's the other, like, real-life event that in- seemed to have inspired Carol is Highsmith had an affair with a woman named... um whose last name was Catherwood, and it seemed to have inspired especially certain elements in the story, including Carol's husband hiring a private detective to investigate them. Catherwood actually lost custody of her daughter due to an affair she had with a woman, which is an element of the story in The Price of Salt, that Carol is afraid that... Um, she will lose custody of her daughter. And um, again, super short on time. But I will say one of the thing is when when the mass market paperback came out, Claire Morgan, so quote Claire Morgan, received tons of positive responses from female readers, including quotes like Yours is the first book like this with a happy ending. Hmm. And another was, thank you for writing such a story. It is a little like my own story. So one thing that sets Patricia Highsmith apart from a lot of the lesbian pulp fiction was The Price of Salt ended with a happy ending in a way that most of the other lesbian pulp fiction at the time did not. Hmm. And that made it both very, it was a very brave thing of her to do. Like, again, as as Lee's quote said, though they were writing under, she was writing under a pseudonym like it was still took a lot of courage in that time period in 1952 to write a lesbian story with a happy ending and publish it because at any point she could have been found out. She was at Highsmith was actually fairly ambivalent about the novel because mostly because she was afraid of how it would be received, particularly by her grandmother. So she actually publicly dodged any connection with the book for a very very long time, even though I mean she had every right to be proud of the story. And what is really lovely is that with Carol, those of us within the community get to, in a sense, celebrate Patricia Highsmith in a way she was never able to celebrate herself. Mm. Like we get to have that experience of celebrating her in a way she couldn't. And knowing all of this context, talking about the Hayes Code, lesbian pulp fiction, we can have a much even deeper appreciation for what Carol is and for that story and how beautiful and powerful and necessary that story was at the time to have... Queer female representation that was positive. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very, very close on time. We have another panel coming in. Like, if we could keep talking. You know us. Yeah. You know history is gay. <laughs> we could talk for another hour. Um, but we're going to have to draw things to a close very,
2: very quickly. Morgan, uh, if you want to tell us, like, where people can find you online. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MCCLAPP. And if you want to contact me through email, because the only social media I really have for people to get a hold of me is Twitter. But if you want to contact me through my email, uh, my email is mclapp1 at gsu.edu.
0: And Leah, where, where can people find you online? So people can
1: find me online at A Paradox influx on Twitter. And at this con for the rest of the weekend, yeah, come Woo-hoo! say hi,
0: woo, yeah, um, yeah, and I'm Gretchen, and you can find me on Twitter as at g n Ellis writer. And again, yeah, we'll be here for the rest of the con, hanging yeah. out, talking about that that good old gay shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And and did you know? Did you know history is gay? <laughs>
1: did you know history is gay? History is gay. Yeah, it's really okay. good. Uh, yeah. So, history is gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at history is gay podcast, Twitter at history is gay pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi. At History Gay Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show and you want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon. There's a whole bunch of goodies. You've heard about them. We don't have a lot of time, but check I'm, it out. Yeah. On Patreon. Morgan is a patron. Morgan is a patron. Y'all should become patrons. Um, we also have merch here. If you want to get stuff, folks who are listening later can buy stuff online <laughs> as usual. Um, and uh, lastly, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Helps more people find the show and we can expand our awesome community. And that's it for History is Gay. Until next time,
0: stay, stay queer. queer and stay curious. <laughs>